0: trigger warning this podcast contains a deep discussion about suicide and sexual abuse which some listeners may find extremely upsetting or distressing so please listen with caution Everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Just Checking In podcast. This podcast, as always, is brought to you by Vent, a place where everyone, but especially men and boys, can open up about their mental health issues, break down stigmas, and start conversations. I'm your host, as always, Freddie Cocker. At time of recording, I've just announced the next Just Checking In Live event and relaunched it for 2022. So it will be the third event in the series. Please go get your tickets if you want to come along. I'd love to see all of you podcast guests, supporters, anyone who's written for Venn or supported the platform in the last four years. So yeah, the link's in the bio on our social channels. uh, It's in our link tree and I'll be spamming it on social media for a lot of time in the months leading up to the event. Back to the show, and as you may well know by now, each pod, I check in with a very special guest. We have a natter about all things mental health, as well as anything and everything else they are passionate about. If it helps that person with their mental health, we discuss it. So far on the Just Checking In pod, I've spoken to a couple of trans people on both sides of the conversation, but in this episode, I'll be speaking to a de D-transitioned woman. Now, you might be thinking that detransition people don't exist, listeners. You might think, well, once someone transitions, surely they never change their mind. However, the reality is, is that there are thousands of detransitioned men and women out there who have decided that once they transitioned that they either regretted it and wanted to try and reverse that process or came to the conclusion over time that being in the biological sex that was observed and recorded at their birth was the right decision in the first place. So my guest for today's show is Sinead Watson. Sinead is a detransition woman from Scotland and has gone on an absolute rollercoaster of a journey, not just with her gender, but with her whole range of mental health traumas, which she says impacted on her decision to transition and then detransition. In this episode we talk about Sinead's struggles with alcohol addiction as well as the sexual abuse she experienced as a child and teenager. She says that this was the main reason for her gender dysphoria and the one which created the desire in her to transition and become a trans man before then de-transitioning. We discussed that process of transitioning, including the double mastectomy she had at age 26, that detransition process, the effect that testosterone which she was put on had on her body, and her decision to come off it in October 2019. we we'll also talk about how her sexuality evolved from being lesbian to bisexual and is now in a happy heterosexual relationship at time of recording. Since detransitioning and finding a community of detransitioners online, Sinead also now faces a lot of social media abuse, very sadly, for her views on the trans debate. And we discuss how that's affected her mental health and we explore some of those views too. This interview was a real privilege to do, and Sinead has shown incredible bravery, resilience, and courage to not only go through this process of detransition but not be afraid to talk about her experiences of it online despite the scars. It has left her with as a result. So this is how my conversation with Sinead Watson went. <music> Sinead Watson, welcome to the Just Checking In pod. Thank you so, so much for letting me check in with you. I hope I do as good a job as Benjamin Boyce did because I've listened to all of your interviews that you've done with him. Thankfully, we get to do this at a normal time of days because there's no time difference because I've, I've interviewed a few of his guests and normally they're all in America. So I'm doing them at like eight o'clock at night or nine o'clock at night. How are you getting on? How are you? I'm doing very
1: well, thanks. And thanks for inviting me on.
0: Amazing. I'm in awe of your journey, to be honest, Sinead. And Your growth and development as a person alongside your mental health is one I'm so excited to explore and I think the issues we're going to discuss is going to be really educational for my listeners too. So without further delay, shall we start the show? Let's do it. Let's start the pod by talking about your own journey, Sinead, because we've got so much to talk about here. So I ask all my special guests this question first. So can you walk me through your early life in Scotland, teenagers? And looking back, were there any early mental health experiences you can pinpoint? Who's the Sinead we meet here?
1: Well, my very early childhood's very hectic because we moved around an awful lot. So in Scotland, in primary school, you've got seven years, and I went to six different primary schools. Because we were moving around. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, So I was always the new kid. And prior to the age of about nine, I didn't have any friends because we weren't in one area long enough to actually make any. But, you know, I was very happy to just go about and entertain myself. I wasn't a sad kid or anything like that. And then we finally did settle in the place where the house is still five minutes away from where I live. So I'm very familiar with the area that I'm currently in because I grew, for the most part, grew up here. And yeah, I eventually did make some friends. And Academically, I wasn't very good. And I think it probably was all the moving around where every time I went to a new school, the curriculum was somewhat tweaked and I missed bits here and missed bits there. Mm. So, right up until high school, I thought I was like a proper stupid kid because I was at the bottom of all my classes. So, yeah, I very normal childhood I think. I wasn't depressed, I didn't have any other issues aside from being socially awkward because of all the moving (laughs) about. are not we all though, a little bit? (laughs) Yeah (laughs) but yeah there there was no sad story about my childhood thankfully.
0: Your mental health journey itself starts off very traumatically Sinead as you experienced a lot of sexual abuse from several people who were close to you or in your close circle, I think we'll put it as delicately as that and This happened when you were about 13 to 14 years old, if I'm right in saying. I understand this obviously created an enormous amount of trust issues from that point onwards. Can you just talk to me a little bit about how that abuse affected your mental health and in what ways?
1: Well, I mean, uh, it was about 13, 14, 15. It was over those years that I physically began to develop. But mentally, you know, I was still the same. So I was, like I said, I wasn't a particularly smart kid. I just, you know, I liked climbing trees and building dens and playing computer games and all that. I wasn't interested in... <laughs> still boys. enjoy that now. <laughs> yeah, not changed much. But yeah, the way I kind of think about it now, because I've thought about this a lot and I've done a lot of self-reflection and I think the most accurate way I can put it would be, you know, when I was around about 14, I still had the mind of a little girl, but I had now had the developing body of a young woman and I was mm. very large chested and I got a lot of attention for it, which... You know, if it's a stranger in the street, if it's a guy in a white van catcalling you when you're walking to school, you can brush that off. But when it's people who, you know, these men knew me when I was a little girl and they were never inappropriate with me. I thought of them, you know, I loved them and I trusted them and I thought of them as a member of the family, even though they weren't blood related to me. And then after I began to develop, starting at 13 or 14, they became highly inappropriate with me. And I, didn't understand it you know I was like why is this person who if you'd asked me a few months ago who would I go to for protection if I was being hassled I would have went to them and Mm. then they became the ones who were making me feel unsafe and because they Mm. were close to members of the family I didn't want to tell anyone
0: were you scared of being believed
1: That's part of it. For one of them in particular, that was a fear. But the other one, it was more, I didn't want to ruin their relationship with other members Mm. of my family. You know, I felt like, you know, just grin and bear it. He's been in your life since before you were born. So don't take that friendship away from the family members that he knows, you know. Yeah, and I got my first job when I was 16. And for the years that I worked there, I was sexually harassed by my manager who was in his 50s. So over the course of my early teens right up into my mid and late teens it wasn't the individual creepy strangers in the street it was when it's someone who's in your life for more or for less you knew it was going to happen again so these weren't one-off instances they were repeated instances that happened over the course of years and gradually that just began to whittle away at my self-esteem my self-respect and my mental health horribly suffered because of it.
0: How did your abuse affect your relationship with yourself as well as your relationship with other men who weren't abusers?
1: I wouldn't really say it necessarily impacted my view of other men in general because I did have a lot of guy friends when I was a teenager and they were never inappropriate to me or anything like that so I didn't become like a man hater or anything like that but when all my friends were talking about boyfriends and going on dates and stuff like that I had no interest in it and you know teenagers your hormones are all over the place that's when your sexuality starts to develop it's when you do start thinking oh you know I want to have my first kiss and have sex for the first time and all that I just I didn't experience any of that I had no interest I had no curiosity and I'm not trying to brag or anything because I wasn't exceptionally looking I was very average but there was plenty of people who had asked me out and I said no and all of my friends were like you know you like him he's funny he's good looking like why won't you give him a chance and it was like it's nothing to do with giving them a chance. I just don't want to date or go out with or do any of that right now. So, yeah, very much even at you know 16, 17, I just wanted to play computer games and hang out with my friends and waste away time online. I wasn't interested in sex or dating or anything like that.
0: We're going to talk about your transition and detransition in a bit, Sinead, but you told me that your gender dysphoria that you experienced growing up at this point was in large part because of the sexual abuse. Do you think deep down and after some self-reflection that your desire to be a man or look like a man was in any way because deep down that if you presented as the opposite sex or looked physically unattractive to your abusers, that the abuse would stop?
1: Yeah, there was definitely a part of it where the reason why I hated my chest so much was because that wasn't the only source. But it was the thing that when I look back to my early teens, it's where all the negative attention was drawn from. There was that little phase where it was like, oh, I wish that I didn't have breasts and all the rest of it. And then it did get to the point where it was like, you know, I kind of just wish I had a man's body. But in my teens, like I didn't know what transition was, so that was never within my realm of consideration. But it was the fantasy of what could have been. And very naively, I thought, you know, men have it so much easier, they never have to (sighs) deal with any of this, which... Maybe they don't need to deal with the sexual harassment as much as women, but obviously men have their own problems that women don't understand because they can't because they've never (laughs) been one. So naively, I did enjoy the fantasy of being a man under the impression that that would basically mean none of the horrible things that happened to me would have happened had I been a man. Mm. When we spoke off air, Sinead, you said to me, I didn't
0: feel like I had the right to be traumatised. What did you mean by that?
1: I think it was because I have people in my life who have been very very violently assaulted. I'm sorry to be graphic here but a a good friend of mine was impregnated by a rapist when we were in our teens and I remember watching how traumatized she was after that and how bad she was and I thought I've never experienced something that bad so who am I to sit and feel sorry for myself and you know, also my boss mm. groped me a few times over the years and said inappropriate things to me, but I never experienced anything like that. And so mm. whenever, you know, she would tell me that she was feeling really depressed and she would cry. And then whenever I was feeling really depressed and I would cry, I'm like, how dare I be as upset she is considering what she went through? And I know it's not a competition, but I did have a lot of people in my life you know, including the women in my family who went through terrible things far worse than what I did. So I kind of felt like I had the nerve to mm. feel depressed over what was So you invalidated it basically.
0: Yeah. Before you decided to start the process of medically transitioning, you had a mental health breakdown and you tried to take your own life when you were age 21 in 2012. So if you could, can you just tell me about your mindset in the build up to that, how you felt and how you felt afterwards, was mm-hmm. this the darkest moment of your life? And obviously you can go into as little or as much detail as you want.
1: I wouldn't say it's the darkest moment of my life, but it was at the time, 2012, it was the darkest time. You know, I'd been kicked out of my mum's house earlier that year because I was, I'd was i become very belligerent and disrespectful while I was drinking. And right. my mum's very much, uh, this is my house, you will respect me. And she got sick of my lips, so she kicked me out. And then I was sort of couch surfing at friends' houses. And then I stayed briefly at my sister's because she got me a job. And then I got into my first flat. And that was where I was completely by myself. So I no longer had like a friend there or my sister there or my mum there. I was by myself. And so I just stopped taking care of myself. I stopped eating. I started drinking. And that was when the alcohol really got out of control I mean I would wake up at five o'clock in the morning and just start drinking vodka you know I was a mess and I want to be kind of careful about how I describe the suicidal thoughts because as much as I wanted to do something dramatic to sort of signal to the people in my life how much pain I was in I don't think I actually wanted to die yeah, that's if, a lot
0: of people, excluding me, we have sort of this feeling, yeah. You yeah. just didn't want to live, did you? Yeah.
1: But yeah. that was the thing, Like, I kind of thought, when because I, I will tell you how I attempted it, I attempted to overdose, and mm-hmm. I thought, you know, if it takes me out, it takes me out. But at the same time, I would sent a message, a friend of mine saying, you know, I love you, goodbye, and all the rest of it. So she, God. yeah, they came down, mm-hmm. they called an ambulance, they called my mother. I can't remember most of this, I was out of it, I just remember waking up in the hospital. But yeah, that was, a lot of people had a lot of questions after that. And I did eventually manage to talk a little bit about what was going on. Yeah, so it it mm. served the purpose that I wanted it to serve, I suppose, in an incredibly selfish way, but still.
0: Do you think, looking back, that you were merely trying to escape the pain you were in rather
1: than actually end your own life? Well, yeah, because I'd sort of really damaged my relationship with my mum when she kicked me out. And then after that, again, I don't remember this, but apparently, you know, when she got in, the ambulance wasn't there yet. So my mum came into the living room while I was lying on the floor. You know, I'd cut my arms all up. I'd cut all my hair off. I'd smashed up my living room. like. So my mum was just like... Okay, maybe you're not just being a belligerent drunk. Maybe you actually are in quite a bit of pain, and and, you know. Yeah. (laughs) So after that, um, my family and friends, you know, to their credit, they did rally round me, and they were like, "Okay, something is going on. We need to talk about it, and we want to help you." But I mean, again, my drinking was so much out of control. There really wasn't much that they could do, bar physically taking the alcohol off me. But when you're 21, there's no laws or anything that you can do to (laughs) stop that. So, Hmm. yeah. In your mid-twenties and
0: as this alcoholism and the addiction and the sexual abuse began to make your mental health really out of control Sinead you began to read a lot of what you said was trans material online so can you just tell the listeners what that trans material was and why did it start to fuel your desire to transition?
1: Well I went onto Google this is while I'm in that flat and I typed into Google you know I'm a woman but I wish I was a man And again, I'd never heard of transition, had never heard of gender dysphoria. So when I did that, I thought it was going to give you like coping techniques to get rid of what I now refer to that as like intrusive thoughts about you should have been Mm. born a man. And instead I found a forum about transition and I found YouTube videos and I found Tumblr blogs and I found sites where they, they just listed the stories of trans men. And so I read all these stories and I watched these videos and I listened to these podcasts and... A lot of their stories sounded so much like mine, you know, the way that they were like, there's not a single day that goes past where I don't fantasize about being a man and I've just always felt wrong and I've just never felt comfortable. And then they would basically just tell their stories, but then they would tell their stories about how they transitioned and about how going on the testosterone made them feel amazing and their insecurities went away and their depression went away. And by that point, I mean, I'd tried antidepressants. I would tried quite a lot by that point, more because mm. my family were so scared. They were like, you need to get some help. And I thought, <laughs> OK, if none of that has worked and these people's stories sound so similar to mine and transitioning helped them so profusely, what if that will help me? So it was relating to the stories of trans men and then becoming obsessed with reading this material and watching this material and basically convincing myself that I was a trans man as well.
0: So when you convinced
1: yourself that you
0: were, how did that progress from there?
1: Well, I didn't want to transition immediately. It was something that I was thinking about. So, you know, I already had short hair and I started binding my chest. So it was something that I'd done privately and that I enjoyed keeping to myself and sort of enjoying the fantasy of transitioning to being a man. But, you know, in 2012, 2013, I didn't come out to anyone. I didn't tell anyone. And I got a girlfriend in 2013. And that was one of the things that sort of broke the camel's back, if you will, because I realized that, you know, I'd never had sex with someone prior to her while I was sober. I'd always been blackout right. drunk. And then we dated. And were you a lesbian
0: at that time, Sinead, just to be clear? Yeah, were you yeah. a lesbian or were you bisexual? Okay.
1: <clears throat> yeah. Well, I identified as, as a lesbian at the time, have since discovered my my bisexuality. <laughs> but yeah, we dated for about seven or eight months. And it was the realization, because she was a beautiful girl. Like, I'm not trying to pat myself too hard on the back or anything, but I was very, very attracted to her. But I could not be intimate with her while I was sober, because I was so distressed by my female body that it was just impossible. So I kind of thought, okay, along with all the other stuff, like finding the trans material and enjoying the fantasy of being a man, I now know that I can't even be intimate with my girlfriend and potentially anybody else without being hammered because I can't stop thinking about the fact that I'm doing this with a female body, basically. Wow. Okay. Um. Yeah, so I ended that relationship with her and then came out to all my friends and family as trans in late 2013
0: one quote I want to read out from you when we spoke of her as well, Sinead, before we talk about that sort of medical side is, you said, I never truly believed it, but I said, I need to transition or I'll kill myself. Was that a self-fulfilling prophecy? Because I do hear this a lot in the conversation about people saying, if these kids with gender dysphoria don't transition, they will die.
1: Yeah, I mean, at the time, you know, I, again, as you've just quoted me, um, I didn't really believe that I would kill myself. Like, I didn't really believe I was suicidal, but it was just something that was so prevalently said among the trans spaces mm. that I saw, where in a very childish way, it was kind of like a competition, you know, like my gender dysphoria is so bad and I'm so trans that if I don't transition, I'll end up killing myself. And I was like, okay, I really want to transition. I really wish that I was a man, but I don't think I'll kill myself over it. And then you mule it over in your head and then you get to the point where you just see it. You know, and I I did. I used to tell people, you know, if I I don't get to transition, I'll kill myself. And I didn't mean it. I just felt like I had to say it.
0: Is that a dangerous narrative to be out there without sort of, because I don't think the evidence is established, is it?
1: No, I mean, that's the thing. The statistics for successful suicides of people who have not been allowed to transition are are tiny. You know, there's a lot of suicidal ideation.
2: As Mm, for actual
1: suicide mm. attempts, that's different. So I think that it is incredibly dangerous, not necessarily just for the trans individuals themselves, but for their loved ones, especially if you're talking about a young trans person, to tell their-
0: about the topic, yeah. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah.
1: to tell their parent, you know, you've heard that line drop before. Do you want a dead son or an alive daughter? You know, it's it's a horribly abusive narrative to be spreading.
2: (sighs) Yeah.
0: You were never put on puberty blockers, Sinead, as you didn't seek medical intervention as a teenager, which we've already established. But for the listeners who don't know, What does puberty blockers do to a female body? And then also, looking back, are you glad you didn't ask of them
1: or not? I mean, because I didn't even consider transition until after completely developing, puberty blockers weren't something I ever thought about or considered. I fortunately have some wonderful D-trans women friends who are doing very well now, but they went on puberty blockers. You know, Kira Bell's one of them. She was on puberty Mm. blockers at 15. And yeah, I mean, the, the effects, it's often described as a pause. But, I mean, you're pausing a natural process. You're supposed to be growing both physically and mentally. And so if you have two 13-year-old girls, you put one of them on puberty blockers and keep her on them for two or three years, so you've now got two 15-year-old girls. The 15-year-old girl who didn't take puberty blockers has developed naturally, so she'll be taller. She will have started to physically develop. Socially, she would have developed. The 13-year-old who is in a 15-year-old's body You know, because she's literally 15. Yeah. Because she...
0: Does she stay 13 mentally maybe as well? Yeah.
1: Mentally and physically, it puts a pause on the entire development process. So, I mean, not only is it physically dangerous because that's when your bones are developing and things like that, Mm. it's also mentally dangerous because, as you know, like when you develop between those crucial years of, say, 13 to 15 or 16, you're supposed to develop and grow with your peers. And that's how we grow as people mentally. If you're going to put a pause on that, that can't happen. It's a lot more than just an innocent pause. And I resent people that insinuate that it isn't.
0: When you were 24, you then did start medical intervention, which came in the form of testosterone, which you injected once every three weeks. I've just recently finished Carol Hooven's book on testosterone, which was completely eye-opening to me in many ways, sort of realising some of my own behaviours were some of the result of testosterone <laughs> a lot of the time when I was a kid too. What did testosterone do... Your physical health and then your mental health, because I understand it has a pretty big effect on your libido. Is that right?
1: Yeah, like insane. And I will yeah. <laughs> push that in a little second. But like <laughs> the physical side effects, I mean, there was no negative side effects at the time, like the things that I wanted. So I got more muscle mass. My jaw appeared a bit thicker because that's the fat redistribution. Obviously, your jaw doesn't literally get thicker, but the fat redistributes on your face that gives you a more masculine, angular, Facial shape your body fat redistributes so I lost my hips and my ass and was just like very straight which is what oh, I wow. wanted okay my cellulite disappeared a lot of the young <laughs> D trans women who have problems with their weight love that side effect you know I was
0: gonna say yeah it must have been a bit of a <laughs> self-esteem boost in that respect
1: yeah and like obviously you can hear in my voice I developed an Adam's apple and things like that so the physical changes were very quick and I was very happy with them at the time the emotional changes like the increase in libido was absolutely insane. You know, like I mentioned earlier, when I was younger, I wasn't interested in dating or anything like that. And that kind of stayed with me right up until my 20s. I mean, I'd went out with that one girl in 2013, but other than that, I just wasn't interested in dating or sex or anything like that. Then when I was on testosterone, it was all I could think about, you know? (laughs) I can't get my work done, I can't... You saw the male reality! (laughs) Oh, it was awful, like, I think it was just... Okay, I will tell you this story. You experience some clitoral growth when you're on testosterone and it becomes hypersensitive. And I remember, you know, I was sitting at my gamer chair, I was sitting down to play Fallout 4, and I sat cross-legged, and I sat in myself and turned myself on. And I was just sitting there like, oh, okay, now I can't even sit like this anymore. And I just remember thinking this change, I could not have been prepared for it. It was unbelievable. And like, I tell people about it and they're like, it couldn't have been that bad. I, it was that bad. Yeah, <laughs> you know? I
0: swiftly realized that testosterone is probably one of the most powerful chemicals or drugs, however you want to call it, on earth in that mm-hmm. regard. After the testosterone, you decided to go through with a double mastectomy at age 26 in the summer of 2017, Sinead. Now, mm-hmm. despite being an adult and your frontal cortex was developed by then, it's still an incredibly big and, I imagine, traumatic decision to make. Can you tell me about the Sinead we meet here and how you felt before and after your breasts were removed? Did you feel better after the surgery? Did it cure your gender dysphoria or not?
1: It didn't cure it, but I did feel really good after the surgery. My breasts were the main thing that I wanted gone more than any other part of the transition process. I really wanted the double mastectomy, and I'd wanted that for years by that point. So, yeah, I mean, I travelled to England for it. And then I got the procedure and I came back home. And yeah, I mean, when you spent your whole adult life and, you know, a part of your young life and your early teens walking around with two weights on your chest and you wake up with them (laughs) gone, it feels very strange. But yeah, I mean, I felt really good initially for at least a couple of months after the procedure, I felt really good. And I thought, yeah, you know, I'm the perfect example of a transition success story. Look how good transition has made me feel. But then, not too long after that, so we're in early 2018 now, something happened that had also happened after I started testosterone, and that was a dramatic dip into depression, where, you know, after I'd been on the testosterone for a while, because I didn't want to keep waiting for the double mastectomy, I fell into a depression, and that happened again after the double mastectomy. And I thought, okay, I've transitioned medically and now surgically, and I'm still sitting here getting pissed, drunk, depressed out of my head. This mm. doesn't make any sense. This wasn't supposed to happen again. So why has mm. it? And that started the realisation of regret. And eventually, mm. a year and a half later, the decision to detransition.
0: We'll talk about the detransition in a few moments, Sinead. But I just want to go back to when you presented at the gender clinic, if we can. <coughs> and we won't name it on here for various reasons but you said you presented to the gender clinic as a trans man and then you said you wanted medical treatment. So in your perspective, should there have been more checks and balances to your desire for that or do you think that that was the right decision for them to do to take you at your word?
1: Well, no. I mean, statistically, gender dysphoria has always been incredibly rare and it's always, for the most part, impacted middle-aged men. And now that we've seen the surge of young women, sometimes, you know, girls, who are flocking to these clinics, I think a little more checks and balances would be very helpful to find out why this is going on. And, you know, I was an adult when I presented, I was 24, as you mentioned, but I told the clinic, you know, I wasn't a trans child. I didn't want to transition as a teenager. It wasn't until I was in my twenties that I decided to And so I think that maybe concentrating on that a little bit more because evidently I wasn't born with gender dysphoria. It's developed Mm. at some point. And so I think it would have been very useful for them to have tried to identify when and why I developed it. Playing devil's advocate here,
0: Sinead, many people would argue in this part of the trans debate at least that affirmation treatment is the correct way for trans kids who are in serious distress. I use the phrase children with gender dysphoria. What would you say to that argument?
1: Well I mean affirmation has its place so I think once you have given someone the appropriate exploratory talk therapy and if they need it counselling and things like that to make sure that we can all identify when this condition appeared how would be best to treat this condition and then if they do seem like a suitable candidate then you can affirm but if you affirm off the bat you are assuming that they are trans and if they are not then you're harming them if you're going to affirm that someone has a condition that they do not have, you're playing a role in helping them convince them that they have something that they don't, and therefore you're putting them towards a treatment that they do not require. And with something like medical transition, as you've spoken about, testosterone is a very powerful drug. You can (laughs) undo a double mastectomy. And so if that is going to be the end result of affirming a young female with gender dysphoria... At the very least, you can do some exploratory therapy prior to affirmation to make sure that's the right path. Because Mm -hmm. it's a a hell of a thing to try in reverse, which you can never do fully, but you can try. So
0: given what you've said then, Sinead, if that is happening to a lot of young girls and maybe young boys as well, but in your case, young girls, do you think we are going to see a lot more detransitioners in the next, let's say, five to ten years?
1: Unfortunately, I really do. I mean, I, I hope that I'm wrong. I really, really do. The stories of the other D trans women and, and the support groups that I'm in are absolutely harrowing, and I don't want to see more of it. People will say, oh, you know, you say that there's so many D transitioners and stuff like that. It's like, I wish there wasn't, and I hope there isn't more. But if things keep going the way they're going, where you've got people being affirmed upon arrival and being put on the medical transition pathway within a very short period of time, then my fear is we will see more.
0: We'll talk about all the issues within that a little bit later in the pod, Sinead, but going into your D transition now. So in early 2018, you're 27 years old at the time, that initial high you had from the double mastectomy is gone or waning. And the gender dysphoria hasn't evaporated like you thought it would, as you said, you were still drinking heavily. You were also suicidal again, or in suicidal ideation, at least. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me about the Sinead we meet here and then how that process of detransitioning began and took
1: hold. The Sinead of 2018 was a depressed mess and the thing that I resented so much about it at the time was because it resembled very much the Sinead I was in 2012 and 2014 and I remember after those breakdowns had happened and I finally got into a better space where I was like okay that's never going to happen again that's behind me and so when I found myself in two thousand eighteen. I dropped out of university, I quit my job, I started self-isolating, I started drinking heavily, the suicidal fantasies were back. And I just thought, oh my god, what else can I do? If transition didn't change this situation, then what will? So even though I didn't necessarily attempt suicide in 2018, I was engaging in very self-harming behaviours. And I just thought, this is it. I'm just going to be miserable and depressed for the rest of my life because the one treatment I thought was going to make me feel better has failed. So it wasn't the magical fix that you
0: thought it was, basically? No. Okay. I imagine there are so many layers to the stigma of being trans. I also imagine there are perhaps even more layers to detransitioning, Sinead, for very many reasons. You know, telling your friends and family who had gone on that journey of transition with you and then admitting that you'd made a mistake or disclosing it online to the rest of the the trans community or even just your you know your followers or facebook friends and that's without taking into account the huge admin process of changing your name back if you adopted a new name Mm -hmm. and trying to reverse the effects of testosterone would you say that you felt more stigma in detransitioning than transitioning or not
1: yeah i mean the thing is because i was a trans man And testosterone is so powerful, transition was actually quite easy. The physical changes came quite quick and I passed very well. With detransition it's not so easy reversing the effects of testosterone, so I mean, you can still hear my voice. I still have an Adam's apple. I still grow a beard and things like that. So some things reverse, but not everything does. And, you know, yesterday when I went to the shop for my bread and my beer and stuff like that, I got called young man by the little lady behind the till, you know, (laughs) and that's two years on. And it doesn't bother me anymore. But in the beginning, you think, you know, is it even worth detransitioning Mm. if I'm never going to pass as my own sex again? But for me, detransition wasn't, the purpose of passing as a woman again it was for the purpose of realizing that I had all these other unaddressed issues that I tried to deal with through transition but that didn't help and so I detransitioned primarily for my own mental health and it was very little to do with passing as a woman again.
0: I just want to come on to that topic of self-acceptance because you laugh about it now being sort of misgendered and and it's fair play to you because I can imagine that can be quite traumatic to some people. So how has that process of embracing womanhood or becoming a woman again been, or is it just been a case of embracing who you are rather than say a concept of womanhood?
1: I know that there's a lot of other D trans women out there who say that they, you know, embraced their womanhood and things like that. I don't really think of it that way. You know, I'm very aware that I'm a woman because I'm a female you know, so the, fair enough, but I don't think about it and maybe it's because I'm in a relationship and maybe if I was single it would be different because it would be very difficult to date as a woman that looks like a man, fair enough. So maybe I, I should be thankful that I'm not in that situation, but me being a woman really just doesn't play a role in my life anymore. You know, aside from the visit from the angry red fairy once a month, you know, but other than that, it really doesn't impact my life. How has your relationship
0: changed with The Mirror?, since the transition because I understand you have one in your house now that must be a huge positive for your self-esteem to be able to put it there and
1: enjoy it in 2012 when I had that breakdown I threw out all my mirrors and subsequently after that I never kept mirrors in any flat that I stayed in you know maybe a little round one in the bathroom so I could check my teeth and stuff like that (laughs) but I never had you know the mirror in the bedroom that you can fuss with yourself around and it was more because whenever I would look at myself for too long, I'd just get depressed, you know, so I just thought better not keeping the mirrors in the house. But yeah, now like it's fine. I sat and looked in the mirror before I came down here to talk to you to make sure my hair wasn't a mess. Like, it's not an issue anymore.
0: We're not videoing this either, so you don't have to worry
1: about that. <laughs> <laughs> I just didn't want to like sit here in my dirty robe like you can tell I'm hungover. <laughs>
0: Another great quote you said to me, Sinead, which I really wanted to read out on the pod when we spoke off air, I think sums up how you feel now. I hope it does anyway. You said, now I'm detransitioning. I am worth something. I am better. So who's the Sinead that said those words?
1: The one who hasn't been depressed in a long time. (laughs) It's weird, you know, I, I hate sounding like some kind of victim, but I was depressed pretty much for the whole of my 20s. And so now that I'm no longer depressed and I'm in a much better place, It's strange not having those dark nights where you do sit and think, oh my God, I am worthless, you know? And so I know that I've helped people and I know that I've achieved things and I know that there are people who care about me and people that I can take care of. So I know that I'm worth something now and I look back on all the the horrible ways that I used to think about myself and I'm self-aware enough at this stage to know that that was just the depression speaking. Now that I am better, I'm very happy to tell you that I've got a bit of an eagle back. <laughs> <laughs> Before we
0: reflect on this journey, Sinead, I want to briefly talk about sexuality as well, because we've explored it a little bit already. But when you detransitioned, you were still trying to hook up with women. But then when they found out you had been a trans man, they sort of declined you or, or turned you down. Did that hurt you initially? And then Are you reflective now that that was simply just their sexual preference or was there any sort of bigotry involved in that at all?
1: There was no bigotry. I mean, don't get me wrong. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. Like my feelings were hurt because no one likes being rejected. But, you know, and it happened while I was a trans man as well, where I was on, you know, dating sites looking for, you know, a lovely lady to spend the night with. And, you know, you tell them, look, I'm a trans man and they're like, "Uh, sorry, but I'm not interested, but have a good night. You know, they were never rude about it which is fair mm. enough because everyone has their preferences. And if you're wanting to be with a man who has a penis, then you're not going to want to date a pre-op trans man, are you? <laughs> so, yes. yeah, like, I never took it seriously. And don't get me wrong, a couple of women who, they were probably bisexual, but, you know, they did agree to meet up with me. So, yeah, the rejection when it happened hurt my feelings. But while I was on testosterone with the increase in libido, for the first time in my adult life, I developed an attraction for men which was unusual i wasn't expecting Mm. it and i felt like a terrible lesbian because evidently i was um (laughs) but yeah it was very strange realizing that men were more open to seeing me as a trans man than women were and i was like okay that's yeah that was interesting and that's actually how i met my boyfriend (laughs) so Mm. when i detransitioned i was like okay I was a terrible lesbian because of the testosterone. Now that I'm off it, presumably I'm going to go back to just being attracted to women. When that wasn't the case, I did have to sort of let the people on Twitter know I was bisexual because they were using me as an example of a lesbian who had been sort of through the whole transition process. And I was like you probably shouldn't call me a lesbian anymore because I have a boyfriend. (laughs) 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 just a slight check there
0: yeah (laughs) i want to talk about your partner if we can now obviously without revealing his identity because he seems like such an amazing man and you met him when your self-esteem was so low you had all the scars that transition had left you and you were still dealing with that you know you like you mentioned the, the lack of chest the adam's apple you said to me before you met him or I guess when you had first started to date him, why would anyone want to be with me, looking Mm -hmm. the way I am? Tell me about your self-esteem now and the kind of man he is and how he supports you.
1: Yeah, I mean, like, because he'd met me when I was a trans man and then we didn't have any contact for a year. And during that period, I detransitioned. And then he messaged me out of the blue and was like, "Uh, do you want to have some pizza tonight? You know, and I was like, yeah, sure. But because I didn't think we were going to see one another regularly i was like i'm not going to tell him i've detransitioned i'll just pretend i'm still a trans man but then he wanted to keep meeting up and I, eventually i was a couple of weeks in and i was like i think we're dating now so i need to tell him <laughs> i'm detransitioned <laughs> and i was so convinced it was going to be a deal breaker for him cuz i didn't know if he thought of himself as gay or bisexual or you know mm. if he would want to date someone who was back to identifying as a woman so i was like okay I'm too much of a coward to do it face-to-face, so I'll text him, and I fully expected him to be like, "Uh, well, good luck with that, but no longer interested. And instead, he texts me back, and he was like, cool, what time are you coming down at? And I was like, okay. But then, like, the first several months that we were dating, I was just waiting for that phone call or that text message. I was like, there's no way he's going to stay with me. I mean, look how disgusting my chest is. Look, you know, He's calling me his girlfriend when I have a beard. And I was like, it's only a matter of time before he becomes too embarrassed to be seen with me. And, you know, I just started counting down, waiting for that to happen. And mm. now we're living together and we're talking about at one point in the future, we're probably going to get married, you know, so I'm in a situation now where I know he loves me and I know he's attracted to me and all of the self-esteem issues that I had in that regard have completely disappeared since I met him.
0: Do you think a lot of detransitioned men and women have this fear that you had about being loved or having the capacity to love themselves?
1: Yeah, and I mean, it's common among trans people as well. So when you transition, you experience that fear. And then when you detransition you experience it all over again, you know. It's <laughs> Where... a couple
0: whammy for you. God.
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so it's like when you don't look the way people would assume you would look, and this doesn't need to necessarily apply to sex, but obviously when it comes to dating, sex is a massive part of it. And so you're like, okay... What lesbian woman or straight man is going to want to be intimate with a woman who looks like a man or vice versa? You know, it's there's a lot of fear right. that, you know, you're going to die alone because no one will want to be with you. But maybe it's because I'm 30, so I'm not like a young, vain kid anymore or anything like that. But I think that fear... Begins to dwindle the older you get, and you realize, you know, not everyone isn't as vain necessarily as you're afraid they are. You know, some Mm. people really will not care that you're trans or detrans.
0: Yeah, well, not on the dating apps anyway. So (laughs) that's a different conversation for another time. (laughs) I want to reflect on your journey now, Sinead. So you've been through this incredible journey and you've shown such resilience, such bravery, such courage to get to where you are today. What has all these experiences taught you about yourself? And if you could go back and talk to that 13-year-old Sinead who was being sexually abused, or the 21-year-old Sinead who was suicidal and drinking all the time and finding all this trans material, or maybe even the 27-year-old Sinead who had just had a double mastectomy, what would you say to her, knowing what you do now?
1: It's difficult because... Even if I did go back and, you know, sort of give 13-year-old Sinead a hug and say, tell someone what's happening, don't put up with it, stand up for yourself, whether she would have listened is another thing. 13-year-old Sinead was incredibly timid and terrified of confrontation and things like that, so whether sort of trying to encourage her to stand up for herself and not put up with the harassment and the abuse might not have made a difference, you know. I think all the horrible things that have happened... Well, I don't think they should have happened, they did. And everything that has happened has shaped me into who I am today. You know, and I might have things that I'm ashamed of and I'm embarrassed about. But ultimately, I'm very happy where I am now. I can't change the past. And I sometimes like daydreaming about what I would say to my younger selves and things like that. But I don't think that it's necessarily productive to spend time thinking about what can never happen. So instead of that, I sort of reframe it and think, okay, these terrible things happened, but everything has led me to where I am now, and I'm the happiest I've ever been. So if it's going to be, it's going to be.
0: Are you proud of yourself?
1: Yeah. I mean, I don't think that I would completely do everything that I have done if I could go back and change it. There are definitely (laughs) some things that I would change. (laughs) But I mean, I do pride myself in the fact that I'm someone that can admit when they're wrong and can admit when they've done something stupid. You know, I know that I'm not flawless. I know that I've messed up an awful lot. And at least I can be a man enough to admit that, you know. Yeah, like I've messed up. But when I have, I've always tried to make it better. So yeah, I might not be the most impressive person when it comes to academia or anything like that. But I know that I'm a good person. I think there's nothing more to be proud of than that. I want to talk now about your trans
0: and then detrans advocacy journey, Sinead, and your journey into it. So, first of all, there are a lot of people who believe detransitioners are an extremely small minority compared to the amount of successful transitions. What is the truth here? And can you provide any stats to educate the listeners?
1: See, it's very difficult to dispute a statistic when it comes to detransition because there are no long-term follow-up studies for us to find this out. We know that James Caspian at the Bath Spa University wanted to write his thesis on transition, regret and detransition and the university wouldn't let him because the topic was so controversial. Wow. Yeah, so the statistic that is often sort of put around is that, you know, There's a very tiny minority of detransitioners, but do you know what? Even the ones that detransition, they don't do it for regret. They do it because of transphobia. And this is largely punted by the US Transgender Survey of 2015. But the caveat here is that unless you identified as trans, you were uneligible to respond to that survey. So because I no longer identify as trans, I would not be allowed to respond to that survey. So the statistics for that where I think they said 13% of the respondents had detransitioned at one point, but no longer identified as detrans because it turns out it was because of transphobia or external factors and things like that. But they were trans identified. So no detransitioners responded to that survey. So whenever people do throw that 1% statistic at me, I'm like, what survey are you using? Are you using these? And if you want to say, for example, oh, we're getting it from gender clinics, okay. The vast majority of de-trans people do not report their detransition to their clinics. I done it this year and I began detransition two years ago. It took me two years to muster up the courage to contact my clinic and tell them to record me as a mm. detransitioner. And I There's know There's a stigma
0: there, of course. Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
1: So how can we get a statistics that number one is being blocked as happened to James Caspian at the Bath Spa University, is being presented dishonestly as is being done in the transgender US twenty fifteen study or isn't even being recorded properly because people aren't going to their clinics to tell them they're detransitioned. So Mm. I can't give you a current long-term follow-up study or statistic when it comes to detransition, but no one else can either. We don't know the numbers.
0: Do you think the vast majority of the public who don't know anything about this topic, do you think they don't believe that detransitioners even exist?
1: It's not necessarily that they don't believe it, it's just it's such a a concept that you wouldn't really just think about it off the cuff, you know. I mean, trans people themselves are a very small part of the population, so unless you're in a place that's very sort of LGBTQ friendly, you probably don't even give a second thought to transition, let alone those who regret their transition. So I think it's just one of those things that unless you present this topic to someone, the chances are they've never thought about it.
0: What I also see, now that I've gone down the rabbit hole of this topic and research, (laughs) Sinead, is that there is at least a social media war going on between a lot of prominent trans rights activists and then de-transitioners. Does that make you sad? Because at the moment, it seems like on the outside, people think that the LGBT community is this one homogenistic, monolith, united front, when actually, it's pretty much a war going on right now.
1: I mean, it does make me sad because, you know, if I'll send you the link for this if you're interested, but there has been a survey done by detransitioners that covered, you know, 237 detransition people, mostly I've women. i heard of
2: this, yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: And the majority of them reported that they felt isolated or exiled from the trans community or just the LGBTQ community in general because when they came out as detrans, they were basically told you're a terrible person and you hate trans God. people and we want nothing to do with you. So personally doesn't bother me because I've got lots of trans friends that I love and who love me. I don't need the mainstream activists approval in any way. But I mean, (laughs) if those were your friends saying that to you, I could imagine that Mm. would be absolutely heartbreaking.
0: There's obviously a lot of detransitioned women like yourself online, Sinead. So when you get social media abuse like you do, isn't this misogyny in a new form?
1: I mean, I suppose you could say that it's misogyny because it is primarily affecting D-trans women. But I mean, detransition as a topic in general, I don't think that a D-trans man who spoke out as often as I do would receive any less abuse. It's the topic of transition regret and detransition, criticizing affirmation only, calling for better exploratory therapy that gets me the most abuse. I'm sure the radical feminists on Twitter would disagree and say <laughs> it's misogyny. Um, and I'm sure that they have a point in some regards. But yeah, I think detransition as a topic isn't a sex issue.
0: Just defining language as well. So I say children with gender dysphoria, but there's a big narrative around trans kids. Mm-hmm. So where do you stand on that? Is gender immutable in your opinion? And is trans kids an accurate phrase at all?
1: No, not at all. I'm 100% with you that it should be children with gender dysphoria. For me, a trans person is someone who has went through medical transition. And I completely oppose in every instance someone under age going through any kind of transition process. I think it should be social transition, but even then, I'm very dubious about how helpful that's going to be for a young child. So when it comes to the topic of trans children, and you probably heard this coming out of the Tavistock and things like that, where a lot of these kids are gay and seem to have homophobic Mm. parents. A lot of them are autistic A lot of them are being bullied and they're being miserable. And since adopting the trans identity, they've found community and friends. So I just think when it comes to children, I would never take the risk of affirming them or referring to them as trans because we know that if we indulge with watchful waiting, the vast majority will desist. And if you put them on puberty blockers and affirm them, the vast majority go on to cross sex hormones.
0: I spoke about with Aaron Kimberley, who you may know of, yeah, anyway. about yeah yeah Aaron's great I love Aaron we spoke about language in these terms of gender exploratory therapy versus terms like conversion therapy now obviously historically we both know that conversion therapy largely been used in sort of US or sort of right-wing Christian conservative circles for homosexual people and is abhorrent and rightfully banned but when it comes to trans people this conversation seems to be blurred from my understanding can you tell me Your perspective on it? And do you think that if you'd had gender exploratory talk therapy, that you'd be in the position you are now?
1: I think that if I was not affirmed and I was given proper counseling for my other issues, I would not have transitioned because I very much doubt I would have felt the need to if I'd actually been helped with my other issues. When it comes to comparing same sex attraction to gender identity, they're different things and they can't be grouped up together like that. If someone is gay, Or thinks they're gay and you let them explore their sexuality then that's perfectly fine because you don't medicalize same-sex attraction there is there's no hormones involved there's no surgery involved you're just gay maybe you'll have an uncomfortable experience in a gay bar one time find out it's not for you but you're not harming yourself you're not doing anything that cannot be reversed with gender identity because there is surgery if it's chosen but in most cases, there's at the very least cross-sex hormones. And we know that, for example, a biological female who takes testosterone is at a massively higher risk of heart attack. We know biological males that take estrogen are at a massively higher level risk for blood clots, among all these other things. Wow. So, yeah, a very good person to look up for things like that is Dr. Will Malone. He's went through mm. just how dangerous these cross-sex hormones can be. And I think simply because of that, if it's going to have potentially harmful effects on people, then you cannot call it conversion therapy just because you want to find out if these treatments will be appropriate for you. It's just, it's proper safeguard, and it's not conversion therapy. Mm. The term "turf"
0: gets used a lot on social media in this debate, and I and I find I find it now to be almost used as a slur mm-hmm. in many circles. I also find it to be a term that's used against people that aren't radical feminists. So you know, Julie Bindle might get slurred with it because she is a radical feminist. But then I also see other people who aren't radical feminists at all get tarred with that brush. Why do you think that is? What's going on with the conversation?
1: The thing about TERF, and like when I was a trans man, I used to use it all the time to pick on the feminists. Like I was one of those. And then I detransitioned. And even though my politics haven't really changed, I started getting called TERF. And I was like, okay, I'm not trans exclusionary and I'm not a radical feminist. So I sort of, started keeping an eye on it. And it just became the word that was picked up that if you want to smear someone and have them branded something that they may not necessarily be, what TERF has come to mean basically is just transphobic. You don't even need to be a feminist. So, you know, for example, calling JK Rowling a TERF, it means Mm. nothing. But by calling her that, you're signaling to anyone listening to you, she's a bad person and you now have the green light to go and say terrible things to her because she's this so-called TERF.
0: She's had death threats. She's had people threaten to put bombs in her letterbox, hasn't she?
1: Yeah, I mean, that, that's if <laughs> unfortunately for J.K. Rowling, because she's so famous, she was probably getting that even before this, but she had the audacity to speak her own view on this. And, you know, it's obviously not all trans people, but there's certainly a, a segment of trans activism where it's just vicious. You get rape threats mm. and death threats and all the rest of it. There's a lot of for lack of a better word, passion there, that very quickly turns to anger and violence. Don't ask me why, I don't know why.
0: You've also got a lot of trans friends yourself who aren't on social media, who just want to sort of get on with their lives and, and live in peace, Sinead, and they are starting to get represented, I guess their views at least, by trans people, so for example Buck Angel, for example Debbie Hayton, there's a few other people that I can't think of the top of my head, but these trans people then get called transphobic for their views that just boggles my mind where have we got to in the conversation right now where trans people are getting called transphobic by other trans people
1: yeah i mean you've probably heard of it because buck angel is on the the panel but they've set up the gender dysphoria alliance which is run by mostly trans men a couple trans women as well But they're the exact type of trans people you're talking about where they do believe in evidence-based science. They do believe in properly treating people with safeguarding and protecting children and things like that because they understand, having been through it, how serious transition is. And the horrible things that get said to them. And what happened to sticking up for trans people and giving trans people a voice? Because people like them have the audacity to just share their own opinions, not regurgitate the mainstream trans narrative. They get horrific abuse from the so-called trans community.
0: There's a lot of people in this space, Sinead, who are uninformed or just just uneducated, probably, who probably think they're doing the right thing or just want to do the right thing to fight for trans people that they might know, stop discrimination, and just try and be good people. However, a lot of those people might not know a lot of trans people or, or any trans
1: people at <laughs> yeah. all.
0: So do you think that's a problem in itself when it comes to education on, a, on an issue that's incredibly complex?
1: I don't know how controversial this view would be, but I really don't think transition is something that should be taught in schools or anything like that. And they'll say, oh, we're doing it so they know people, trans people exist and we can all be inclusive and things like that. It's like, for me, transition should be between the doctor and the patient. And you know, people just are—they're going to go about and live their lives. And you'll see that acceptance of you know LGBT people has started to go down in recent years. There was yeah, a sort it's really of really shocked me actually. Yeah. yeah, and it's went down. And obviously, I can't prove it, but in my opinion, it is this ham-fisted attempt to shove trans acceptance into people's faces, and the queer stuff and all that as well, maybe. But you know, telling people that you must believe trans women are women and they should be able to go for mammogram scans and say that they can have a uterus and we need to say pregnant people and birthing people and bleeding person and person with vagina your average everyday john and jane they they're not buying that they're not appreciating no. it this is really honestly it's it's a privilege held only by middle class tits who don't know how the real men and women and people who are out, sort of working class living their lives, they're not buying any of this. You can't tell them mm. women can have a penis. They're not buying it. And mm. I think it's making people look at the LGBTQ and go, you're all nuts and I'm not supporting you anymore. It's really yeah. bad.
0: Yeah, it really shocked me when I found out that stat, actually. But what you've said there, I mean, it's obviously speculation, but it definitely could be a reason. Can I just ask you quickly about the Q? Because... I don't use that phrase or word because I have a lot of gay mates and I know, well, going through school in a very toxically masculine environment where that word was used and worse words used than that for any man who strayed from gender non-conforming, essentially, you know, that that word was used when boys said they liked songs with female lyrics in them. It, it, It was ridiculous. What I also see is that this word is being used for these new sexualities, these new words like demisexual. But then when I actually look into it, I know a lot of straight people who have that or would who would fit into that definition you know I only fancy someone if I have a strong connection with them
1: the adoption of and I agree with you that it's a slur and it's horribly homophobic and I think anyone using the term queer to define themselves is is not doing a very nice thing but I mean calling yourself queer or any of these other sexualities when in reality you're just straight is just another way to virtue signal and say I'm part of the community I like rainbows and all that because when you look at sort of through the 2010s the worst thing to be was a white straight man that was the worst thing you could be and so if you're a white man or even a white woman and you're straight then you're as close to being a bad thing as you can be to half of these people so of course you would call yourself queer or you would adopt some other sexuality to me it's basically just a way for people to feel special or included in a community that we're constantly having shoved in our faces as this wonderful mm. thing to be a part of and it's probably ignorance you know I don't know any older people who could have been growing up like your friends and like my older gay friends where they were called queer as they had the crap kicked out of them it's all these you know 14 and 15 year old high schoolers calling themselves queer and it's from a place of ignorance they don't know the weight of the evil behind that word.
0: I've also got quite a few lesbian female friends and some of them are quite butch and you know in recent years butch lesbian or butch lesbianism has been celebrated there's quite a lot of lesbian bars in the 90s and, and early noughties but I am concerned, like, do you think that this is going to start affecting butch lesbians? I also know that they've got a lot of gender dysphoria themselves. It's quite a common thing, right?
1: Mm -hmm. About lesbian spaces, we no longer can have them. You know, we know that trans activists and their allies have had lesbian dating sites shut down for not wanting to have lesbian trans women. Really? Yeah. Anything that I say during this that you're hearing about, let me know afterwards and I'll send you all the links for this. Okay. But I, I follow a lot of radical feminist lesbians on Twitter. So I see this very commonly where they're like, this is another space that's been shut down. You know, because this is a thing, they'll call it a lesbian bar or a lesbian app, but it'll be a trans-inclusive lesbian bar or lesbian app, which means they call themselves trans Trans women who are attracted to females will be given access. And then if a trans woman says, I'm a lesbian, I'm not interested in sleeping with you if you have a penis, she's being transphobic. She's being trans-misogynistic. It's a whole thing in the lesbian community right now that I've sort of been keeping an eye on. It's really bad, you know? That's the definition of same-sex attraction, isn't it? No, that's transphobic. You're being transphobic, Freddie. Right. (laughs) It's an
0: absolute minefield, isn't it? Yeah. Well, the the gay
1: men are getting it as well. More and more, they're calling themselves gender-critical gay men are sort of speaking out as well, where they're being told that if they didn't sleep with a trans man who is gay i.e. heterosexual they would be being transphobic against the, the trans men but there's never any talk in these conversations about how that's horrendously homophobic to tell someone you have a genital preference say. you know that used to happen but it used to come from far-right christians now it's that's conversion therapy people. isn't it
0: i yeah. feel like i've we've had i've had this conversation with aaron about there's a there was a viral tiktok video about a girl who was in a commune or something and she was talking about like oh, genital God, preference yeah. and I just watched it and I just thought this is conversion therapy happening before my eye. I mean, she might have been lesbian, she might have been bisexual, who knows, but I just thought this is conversion therapy, isn't it?
1: I think she was lesbian because she'd said that she wasn't attracted to penises, but then she was in this commune where there was a a trans woman with a penis. And so this young, presumably lesbian, decided she had to relearn her biases or re-educate herself and get rid of her genital preference. And that's heartbreaking and that's why so many lesbians are pissed off because they see this happening to younger lesbians and then they're the ones being told that they're hateful for saying she doesn't like penis leave her alone Mm. you know I mean I laugh about it because it's so absurd but in reality it's horrible what's happening to gay and lesbian and to a lesser degree but still to some degree bisexual people it's horrible homophobic bullying that has been held up is perfectly acceptable because it's the trans community that are doing it.
0: What do you think would happen if more people knew about this then?
1: I think that very much like, you know, the more tension that some of the more stupid things are getting. So, you know, the politician recently that said that it's not right to say only women have a cervix. That blew up. And again, your average Jane, your average Joe are like, that's ridiculous. And I think that if it was to get out that lesbians were being shamed for not liking penis, the reaction would be the same. So... Whenever this madness happens, I want it to go viral. I don't want to hide it. I don't want to censor it. I want people to see it because I know that the vast majority of people have enough empathy and enough decency to realize that what is happening is madness and they won't support Mm. it.
0: In your opinion, then, do you think this is a battle between or battle for, I should say, reality? Like
1: objective reality? We now can't say that only women can get pregnant. Now, that is insane. But initially, I thought, oh, they're talking about trans men. They're saying, oh, women and trans men can get pregnant. I can agree with that.
0: I, I was going to say, surely we should just say that, right? If, yeah, if we're gonna, that's perfectly yeah.
1: fine. But no, apparently another side of this argument is that they're talking about uterus implants for trans women. So it's... Holy... Yeah, what? Yeah, I know. And it's like, like, even if you could get a uterus implanted... And by the way, I think that's happened before. I think that happened in Germany decades ago and the patient died because... I didn't it, think that
0: was biologically possible. Is that biologically possible?
1: Yeah, but even if you can put a uterus into a male body, the male body doesn't have anything else that would be able to carry a child to determine. Even if it did, why would you want to do that and take that risk? Like you've seen the footage of the trans woman who I think she had either a trans man Husband or a trans woman wife. But the reason why I'm bringing her up is because she was saying that she was the one that breastfeeds their baby. Right. Now she can't produce milk. So her validation over doing something that only women can do took precedence over the well being of their baby. So it's when <sighs> things like that make it out into the media, as you say, it's attacking reality. And the more and more it happens, the more and more I'm hoping that people say, okay, reality is kind of important, so maybe it's time to shut this down.
0: Just, God, I mean, we could go on and on about this, but it's such a minefield. And the more I sort of read about these things, the more I just become more confused, to be honest. And I have to read another thing to not become confused (laughs) about the initial thing I was confused about. Uh, Can we reflect on this journey then before we move on to mental health chat, Sinead? So mm -hmm. I guess doing it for as... Long as you have, or maybe as short as you have, considering you've only been doing it for a couple of years or maybe a few years. What has this part of your journey taught you about yourself?
1: I'm not as selfish as I thought I was. I used to be someone who was very much, you know, if it doesn't affect me, then it's not my problem to deal with type of thing. You know, and I'm just it's being out honest. Out of sight, to-
0: out of mind sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: But the more time that I've spent talking to other detransitioners, you know, most of them are younger than me. Most of them are still in their 20s. And I sit and I speak to them like, I'm done. There's no more process that I can take. And I'm just, you know, I'm perfectly fine with as I am now. But speaking to, you know, 22-year-old D-trans women who had the hysterectomy and now can't stop crying because they now want a child and now can't have one. And I'm like, God, okay, this might not impact me anymore, but it's going to keep impacting people and no one else is speaking up for them. You do have places like Genspect and Segum, and the Gender Dysphoria Alliance. So there are groups who are sort of trying to talk about detransition, and then you've got detrans voices and post-trans. So there are sort of little non-profits that are trying to bring more attention to it. But I've found that rather than putting out a newsletter about detransition, I just talk privately with individual detransitioners behind the scenes, because sometimes all they need is someone to listen, someone Mm -hmm. to vent to, because they try going back to their GP or going to counselling. They don't want to talk about detransition. It's very, very hard to find a counselor or mental health carer or therapist who's comfortable discussing transition regret with you, Mm. obviously, because they, they fear they'd be branded transphobic. So I've learned that I'm very happy to put aside several hours of my week to speak to other D trans women who, you know, I might never speak to them again. I might become good friends with them. I don't get any money from her. I don't get any recognition from her. I do it because if I had that when I was at the beginning of my detransition, it would have really helped me. Mm.
0: Just on that, Sinead, because obviously you're speaking to a lot of these detransition women and I will never understand, I can only empathise, I will never understand what it's like to go through this, to remove, essentially, your in your case, erogenous zones and Mm. then regret it. So... In situations like yours and these other people you support, what on earth is their mental health state like? Do they blame themselves? Do they hate themselves for doing it? What is going on in their head?
1: I mean, it's different from the individual. Some accept a lot better than others, specifically, you know, if they've only taken testosterone, you know, and they didn't get any of the surgeries, then there's a little bit of relief for them on their part. And it depends on age as well. Like the older detransitioners that I know, have kind of accepted it and have kind of dealt with it that they don't have their whole life ahead of them or anything like that but if you're you know 19 20 or 21 years old and you're detransitioning and you've got all the side effects from transition the common thing that they often say to me is I've ruined my life or I've ruined my body or no one's ever oh gonna love God. me or and all this stuff and initially I didn't really know what to say to that, because I was like, okay. If, can you say? Yeah, yeah? but I've often found out that I don't have to say anything. I just tell them, shoot, tell me everything that's on your mind. And you're just a shoulder for them to lean on. You don't give them any unsolicited advice. Often that doesn't help them. You just let them vent. Because I did this as to myself. You just vent and self-reflect. And in doing so, you identify your problems and where they came from and what needs to be done about them. They really should be doing it with a mental health professional, but obviously most of them can't. So, yeah, if just letting them run will help them in any kind of way, normally they will sort of discover on their own terms what they need to do to get themselves to a better place.
0: We've come to the final topic of conversation, Sinead, on this pod, and it's one I try and have with all of my special guests if I can. And it's a general natter and chat about mental health. So first of all, how would you say your mental health is at the moment?
1: Very good. Can't really complain. Probably do still drink a little bit too much, but not depressed or suicidal and haven't been for a couple of years now.
0: That's a great answer. What I love to what I love to hear, Sinead. What I love to hear. What age do you think you were? When you became self-aware of your mental health for the first time, and you realised the feelings you were having weren't physical and they were actually in your mind and a product of your mental health.
1: That's a difficult question to answer because I spent so long purposefully trying to ignore my mental health issues, even though I knew (laughs) they were there. I would say 2018, when I was coming to terms with the transition regret, was when I had to acknowledge to myself that this isn't a physical, like the issue isn't physical, and that I had to transform or alter my body it's clearly in my mind because the transition hasn't actually helped it so yeah 27 when I started really thinking about it but I did go through periods of depression while I was trans and was kind of aware that you know I'm self-soothing with alcohol again we better stop that before it goes the way it used to go so yeah I was mid to late 20s when I sort of realized that the problem was in my mind and nowhere else When you
0: had that first conversation about your mental health with someone, who was it with? How did it feel? And did you feel like a part of you had changed or you had entered a new chapter in your life or a big burden or weight had been lifted off your shoulders? Or did it feel like something quite small, insignificant and normalised?
1: Well the first person I ever spoke to about my mental health concerns was my social worker at the time. The reason why I didn't tell like my best friend for example was I didn't Want her or anyone in my family to be aware of how depressed I was. So I thought, I'll tell my social worker. He's not going to tell anyone. And yeah, when you say it out loud for the first time, it's kind of strange. You know, I remember sitting with him outside the building that our appointments used to be at. And I just turned to him and I was like, I am horribly depressed. I'm miserable right now. And he was like, okay. And then we spoke about it. But even just hearing yourself say that out loud for the first time is a step in itself because you're like, wow. There's something that I've said in my head for years now that I've just (laughs) said out loud. So yeah, even though there was a long, painful process after that, admitting that to another person for the first time itself is a step to healing, I think.
0: What triggers do you have that affect your mental health, Sinead? So it could be, for example, someone could say something to you, it could be a sensation, it could be a social environment, it could be a sound, or have you not figured all of them out yet?
1: The only one that really comes to mind is... I don't deal very well with high levels of stress. I can deal with like, you know, oh, I've got a lot of work this week and I'm tired and blah, blah, like that's fine. And I can deal with like babysitting my sister's three kids. They're all nuts and they're all energetic. And I'm like, (laughs) oh God, like that's fine. But if too much is on my plate at once where I'm like, I'm going to mess this up, I want nothing to do with it. I start getting the urge to self-isolate and binge drink. And that's been present ever since my teens Whenever life becomes too much, I'm like, you know, I've I've walked out of jobs and dropped out of university because of things like that. I just try and stop everything in my life and self-isolate and binge drink to make me forget all these stresses and stuff like that. That's still an urge I get every now and again. My partner helps ground me when it comes to it now. But yeah, the only trigger I can really think of is extreme stress. Fortunately, I haven't been triggered by that since 2018. Well, that's
2: good. Yeah. yeah.
0: (laughs) Conversely then, what tools and methods do you use in your own life to improve your mental health or help you feel better? Which ones have you found that have worked? And also, maybe which ones that you've tried but haven't?
1: It really depends on the mood that I'm in. I've found that talking to people about it does make me feel better. So, you know, I'll call my sister up and have a rant or I'll have a drink with my best mate or whatever it is. Um, That's often quite cathartic, but... It depends on how stressed out I am, because the last thing that you want is to call up your friend and say, I'm really depressed, and then her freaking out and being like, oh my God, you know, we need to keep an eye on you. And then that just makes you feel even more stressed that you're being a burden to the people in your life. So talking about it sometimes is very helpful, but other times it's for me putting the bottle down and going for a long walk, normally with a podcast or an audiobook. Um, I'll walk for two hours in one direction, and then I'll walk the two hours back. And I'm normally fine by the time I get home. Mm -hmm.
0: What is the best book, or as I call it, mental health bible you've read for your mental health?
1: I don't know if it's the best one, but because I have just read it again recently, I'd probably say 12 Rules for Life by Jordan Peterson. Um, (laughs) Yeah, I know like not everyone in my circle is a big fan of his, but I'm a big fan of Peterson. And I thought his book was and most of its common sense, you know, and advocates for taking personal responsibility and things like that. But sometimes the right answer is the simplest one. And I do think that when I was younger and I was struggling, had I been encouraged to sort of be more responsible and take more responsibility and look after myself and tidy my room, as he says, I think that would have really helped me. But because I was by myself, I was allowed to stop taking care of myself, stop taking responsibility for myself and look where it got me, you know. And as a
0: final question,
1: Mm -hmm. what more do you think we have to
0: do to ensure people from all backgrounds all walks of life feel comfortable and safe in opening up about their mental health issues or just their general mental health if they want to do it?
1: I mean, that really depends on the people they have in their life. If you've got someone who's abusive or someone who... Whether it's a parent, whether it's a partner, whether it's a friend, I'm sure we've all had that friend that took advantage of us by borrowing lots of money and things like that. You don't want to be opening up to people that would take advantage of that. So, really, in order to feel safer and more comfortable doing it, I think at this stage in 2021, there's not as big a stigma around certain mental health problems as there used to be. You know, to say that you're depressed or you have anxiety. That's not uncommon these days. So the
0: mainstream ones,
1: yeah. Yeah. But I mean if you're struggling with something quite severe, like, God, I don't know, you're dissociating. BPD, or something. And
0: disassociation, like that. yeah, yeah. Yeah,
1: I mean that's probably something you're better keeping with a professional, I would say. Tell loved ones if you believe that they you know, are going to be accepting of it or understanding. But I mean, as much as I've had a very bad experience with therapy and stuff like that, there's no doubt that it can be really helpful for a lot of people. So just finding a therapist that actually works for you and who you get along with and you can eventually learn to really trust, I think in a lot of cases can be massively good for your mental well-being in the long run.
0: Sinead Watson, you are an incredible person. I cannot thank you enough for coming on the Just Checking In podcast.
1: Oh, thank you very much. It was lovely to be on to speak to you.
0: Well, I think that's all we've got time for on this episode of the Just Checking In podcast. I want to say a huge thank you to Sinead for being my special guest on this episode and for letting me check in with her. I will put some links to where you can follow Sinead on social media and read some of her insightful musings and opinions on this debate if you want to. I personally find her tweets a constant educational resource, so if you do want to educate yourself on detransitioning or detransitioners in general, you would be hard-pressed to find a better person than Sinead to follow. As always, I will sign us off by saying thank you to all the vendors who tuned in to this episode of the pod. If you have liked what you've heard, give it a share on the usual social media channels, tell your friends, tell your family, tell your work colleagues about it. If you want to support us, you can give us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. You can also donate to our Patreon if you want, which is at www.patreon.com slash eventshelpuk. If you don't want to do that, you can do a one-off donation by visiting our GoFundMe. The GoFundMe is in our link tree and on our website. Just to say again, if you want to come to the next Just Checking In Live, it's Saturday, 29th of January, 2022. Please get your tickets. would love to see you all there. We hope to check in with you again very soon. And remember, guys, it's always okay to vent.